Well, good morning. Good morning. Hi on Zoom. Good morning. Uh, my name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I am one of the preachers here at GFC. Um, just one quick note, if you weren't able to get an outline, that's probably because we ran out. Um, so go ahead and you could use your phone. Um, the outline is on the website, uh, and you can access it there if you don't have a paper copy. Um, but this morning, I wanted to tell you the lessons that I've learned from 2020. Uh, and that is that both Tom Hallman is awesome and also that planning is really, really hard, right? Isn't planning just incredibly, he wrote that on my notes, by the way, that says right here, Tom Holman is, is, Tom is, Tom Holman is awesome. Um, the, it is hard to plan anything, isn't it? And it's even harder to execute the plans that we come up with. And that's one of the reasons why I marvel every day at God's amazing plan as I get just tiny glimpses of what his plan for the world actually is. Uh, and God's plan spans the length and the breadth of time. And yes, that plan even includes the year 2020. So today we are going to be reading Luke 22, 31 through 62. And we're going to get a glimpse of God's astounding astounding plan. And I think that the structure of these verses is key to helping us understand the goal that Luke had as he wrote this book to, the to Theophilus. Uh, Luke hopes to demonstrate that the hope of Israel, God's plan of salvation for the world, has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And the organization of these verses uh, is done in such a way that Luke highlights this incredible saving work that Jesus does on behalf of the guilty, even though he himself is innocent. God's plan of salvation is truly breathtaking. And these verses, I, I mentioned the structure of these verses, um, and it's composed and written as what's called a chiasm. Uh, that's a traditional method of writing which uses mirrored sections in order to draw the audience's, audience's attention to a central point, a theme at the center of the text. So rather than building up to a point, as we frequently do in a linear fashion, a chiasm points inward toward the point in the center. In this case, specifically, the last section are both the story of Peter's denial of Jesus, which illustrates for us the fatal problem of mankind. That is our continuous rebellion against God. And after the first and final points, Luke moves into the second and fourth sections, which have the same point. Those both focus on the promise plan of God to restore those of us who are rebels. Third and central section is the focus of the text. That's what Luke is driving all the arguments in the middle of the text, which is the astounding hope, the astounding hope that we have in Jesus, who is the righteous one of God. The fact that he submitted to the Father's will, 
that we who are rebels might be saved. It's been a bit of a challenge for me to, to translate this format, this, this chiasm format, into a linear sermon. I'm going to try to do that for you this morning, um, and it's been a challenge, but I hope that by God's grace, as we study these verses together, you will be challenged to fully depend on Christ. is the hope of our salvation we who have transgressed or rebelled or sinned against god so we're going to start this morning by reading both luke 22 31 through 34 and we're going to skip to the complementary section at the end verses 54 through 62 and we're going to read those two sections together because they have the same point that mankind's fundamental soul deep problem is that of rebellion against god so read those two sections with me this morning 31 through 34 of luke 22 simon simon behold satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but i have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied me three times, have denied that you three times that you know me. And let's skip to the last section. The following verses, 54 through 62, take place after Jesus has prayed on the Mount of Olives and has already been betrayed by Judas. Then they seized him and led him, that's Jesus, away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them, looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, another insisted, saying, certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Friends, in these verses, Luke highlights for Theophilus and for us that mankind's fundamental problem is that of rebellion against God. That is that we have a soul deep sin problem 
the setting here in this first section of Luke's chiasm is that Jesus is having his last meal with his disciples. The Passover meal that symbolizes the salvation of the people of Israel through the sacrificial death of a lamb whose blood protected them from death while they were in Egypt. And Jesus uses this perfect moment to reveal to his disciples, his closest friends, the plan for his own personal role in an even greater salvation, the similar sacrificial death. But sadly, the disciples completely missed the point, and they were arguing with each other about which of them would be thought of as the greatest. And that's where we pick up in today's text, that Jesus, in verse 31, gives this warning. He warns them, saying that Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Now, both of the references to you in that verse in the Greek are actually plural, okay, which would imply that the coming sifting is not exclusively for Peter, who he's referring to. He's, he's directing his comments to Peter, but he's talking about all of the disciples, all of them, not just exclusively Peter, that the great accuser would challenge even Jesus's most closely held friends, his closest and most intimate followers would be challenged by Satan. But praise God, because Jesus intercedes. He prays for them. But look at what he prays in verse 32. Not that God would deny Satan the chance to sift them, which would certainly have been within God's power to prevent. Not even that they would somehow escape this test or, or escape this sifting. Not even that a few of them, maybe just a tiny few, would pass the test and be found blameless. Friends, he prayed that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That is what Jesus prays. And in this case, those use that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, those use are not plural. They are singular. So now Jesus is talking directly to Peter and telling him essentially that Peter, Satan is going to test all of you, and you will fail that test. But Peter, if your faith holds firm through it, then you will come back again, and you can be my instrument to strengthen your brothers. And so Peter replies, Nuh-uh. I won't fail. I'm your man, Jesus. I'll do the right thing. Even if I have to die for it. <laughs> but Jesus knows better. Peter, it won't even be 24 hours before your strength
has proven us through 62, where Luke relates that exact failure in full and heart-wrenching detail. Verse 57, to a servant girl. Woman, I do not know him. Verse 58, to a random stranger. Man, I am not one of them. And verse 60, about an hour later, do not know what you are talking about. And the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. Even in the midst of being accused himself, Jesus focuses his attention on the disciple that he loves. And Peter knows that he failed. He knows that he did not pass the test. And Jesus knows that that sifting by Satan has found Peter wanting. And when Peter in that moment realizes it, he went out and he wept bitterly. Friends, how do we apply this? We must recognize our own utterly lost state. We must come to the end of ourselves. Our own inability to pass the test. We must acknowledge our sin nature. Because Satan didn't ask to afflict the disciples, to attack them or impress on them somehow, but merely to test them, to sift them, and to reveal those who fail the test. And we must realize, friends, that Peter failed and we do know better. We tell ourselves, it's just one small thing, one look, one lie. One time to choose me. Those are the exception. That's not who I am. In the big stuff, I am faithful. I would go to prison or to death for you, Jesus. But my friend, it is who you are. And it is who I am. And so Peter meets Jesus' eyes with the denial of this on his lips. And he is so convicted and he weeps bitter tears. But Jesus knows more than Peter does in that moment. In fact, Jesus knew from the beginning. And he gave Peter an assurance of victory, even as he told him at the, at the table as they're sharing this meal. He assures Peter of a victory, even as he dashes all of his hopes that he will pass this test. When you have turned again, Peter, strengthen your brothers. How did Jesus have such confidence? Because of his own intercession 
for Peter that his faith would not fail. Though he may utterly fail this test, his faith may not fail. But faith in what? If we do not have the strength to defeat our sin, even for one hour, even armed with our best intentions, and in this case of Peter, even armed with complete foreknowledge and forewarning of what was going to happen, if we can't put our faith in that, where can we put our faith, friends? And praise the Lord that that is the second pair of Luke's chiasm. That God Almighty, Yahweh, has prepared a way for those of us who rebel to be accounted as righteous. So let's read the next mirrored section in the chiasm, which is both verses 35 through 30, or sorry, 35 through 38 and verses 46 through 53. Oh, that was close. Uh, and I hope that that will both give you an anchor for your faith and, as it has me, utterly astound you as we consider the will of God. Read these verses with me together. Verses 35 through 38. And this is part of Jesus' final talk again back in the upper room. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Then let's skip back again, skip down again to verses 46 through 53. And now we're back in the garden at the Mount of Olives. While he was still speaking, that's Jesus, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out again. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Friends, in these verses, we get just a tiny glimpse into 
testify, we who are rebels against him. Let's break it down. So the first thing that Jesus does in this upper room, speaking to his disciples, is that he reverses the instructions that he had previously given, which is found in Luke 10, verses 3 to 4, where he was sending out 72 of his followers as forerunners into towns where he was going to go. And he says in those verses, wolves, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. But so now in Luke, again, at this last meal that Jesus is having, he knows that he is sending out his followers. He will no longer be with them for a time. But this time is different than the time previously in Luke 10. And Jesus tells his disciples exactly how it is different. That the scripture must be fulfilled in Jesus. And specifically, he is, is go home and read that whole chapter of Isaiah 53. It's not long. But it's so, so rich with imagery, and, and it just blew my mind when I read this, everything that Jesus is saying here with that simple quote. So please read the whole thing. But this morning, I want to read only for you verses 10 through 12. It says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities therefore i will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, this is the plan of God. The entire scripture summarized that God's will is that through the righteous one, many may be accounted righteous. How? Because Jesus would take it on himself. It's as it says in Luke 20 or 22, 37, that's where it says this, that he was numbered with the transgressors. That word transgressor can be translated also as rebel or the lawless. Those who are enemies of the rightful ruler. Those who have a fatal rebellion problem. 
us. This is how his soul makes an offering for guilt. Because though he was innocent, he was counted among the guilty. And for that, he was crushed. And so this is how Jesus is about to send out his followers. Not as lambs among wolves anymore, but as wolves who have been made righteous by the sacrifice of the lamb. And because the plan of God is so infinitely more intricate than we can ever grasp, the second part of this chiasm shows for us this spiritual truth played out in the physical. This salvation through the association of the innocent with the guilty. The disciples in verse 38 have two swords. <laughs> two, just two. But Jesus says, it is enough. Enough for them to play out the drama that this section shows us in verses 47 through 53. Where Judas performs the ultimate transgression, the ultimate rebellion, betrayal with a kiss. And the disciples in that moment decide to take these swords that they have so conveniently brought with them. That was not an accident. And they attack the servant of the high priest. A small act of rebellion, but enough. Enough to bring charges against Jesus before Pilate of inciting rebellion. Jesus says in verse 53, addressing the chief priests and the elders, that this is your hour and the power of darkness. And friends, there is so much here in these verses that is so horrendously dark. Betrayal, conspiracy, hate, violence. And this is only a tiny, tiny fraction, a microcosm of the results of our human sin, our rebellion against God. This is what God plans to lay on the shoulders of his beloved son. All of it. He's going to lay all of this on the shoulders of Jesus. Every single despicable act of that night and every moment of the choices that were made leading up to it. And every one of the choices since then, including all of your sin and mine. This is what God is asking Jesus to pay for, that we rebels can be counted as righteous. And that brings us to the final point, an arrow driving right to the heart of this chiasm, which is in verse 42. How will Jesus respond to this plan, to the Father's will, which we read in Isaiah was to crush him and put him to grief? Let's read verses 39 through 46, which is right in the middle of this story, before the final moments in the garden. Read with me and see Jesus do what no man has ever done to submit fully to the father's will 
and to begin to make the transgressors righteous. Luke 22, verses 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Here, Jesus does the thing which no son of Adam could ever do. He does not he does not rebel. He submits. He submits his own will to that of the Father. Even knowing everything that that would mean for him. Knowing what that would actually cost him. Verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This verse is the focus of that chiasm. This is the answer to mankind's rebellion. It's the answer to Peter's denial. It's the answer to Judas's betrayal. It's the answer to the disciples' blindness and their violence. It's the answer to the hate that the priests and the elders had. Not my will, God, but yours be done. This is why it said in Isaiah 53 that the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand because he does not rebel. He alone does not rebel. And because he didn't rebel, he allowed himself to be counted among us, among the transgressors. We, the sinners, because he was perfectly obedient to his father's will. And friends, this alone is our hope. How do we apply this? How do we take and make that hope our own? Just as the first step was to recognize our failure and our sin, the last step is to accept the victory of Jesus. We could never have paid for our rebellion, but Jesus did. Jesus did. He made the decision in that moment in the garden to submit to the Father's will and to walk the path that in just a few short hours is going to have him nailed 
to a cross. But in that moment of apparent defeat, Jesus won the victory that entitles him to inherit from God every one of us who is here. And every one of the nations and the tribes and the tongues, they belong to him. So if you have not accepted the victory that was won on your behalf by Jesus, then I beg you to consider. Consider your true state as a rebel before God. And consider that all of your transgressions have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Your own strength can never pay the price. But Jesus' willingness to be accounted on your behalf as a transgressor can justify you fully in the sight of God. So please talk with one of the elders who are here this morning if you believe that that is true. And for those of you who do depend fully on the sacrifice that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has made, then friends, praise the Lord. (laughs) Praise him. Like Peter would eventually do, you have turned back again. So strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your sisters. Intercede for one another as Jesus did for Peter. Our identity is now no longer that of a transgressor. Our identity is hid firmly in Christ. That means, friends, that we are dead to ourselves. And we are alive in him. So our application is to rejoice and to marvel at the will, the plan of God, at his work in your life. This is the will of God to restore you to fellowship with him. And to transform all of us into images of his son. Who so perfectly submitted to his father's will. So how do we do that? We pray. We pray that our faith may not fail. Even when we fail. We pray that we may not enter into temptation. But most of all, friends, we pray, not my will, God, but your will be done. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning, Lord. We thank you for the incredible, incredible work of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that he submitted to you on our behalf that he was counted among the transgressors, that we might be saved. So Lord, we submit to your will. We submit to your will in our nation. We submit to your will with the coronavirus. We submit to your will with our relationships, God, with our employment. Lord, we submit to your will, God. 
in all things, that we may be united with your son, Jesus Christ, and that we may come through that with our faith intact and strengthened, that we may strengthen our brothers and our sisters here this morning, here on the internet, here all over the world, God, that we as a united body of Christ would be united with your son, Jesus. God, we thank you so much for your plan. Amen.